0: Card-carrying Bayesian at this point, Ben
1: Alamar, director
0: of sports analytics at
1: ESPN. Just
2: connects uh, a big poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man.
1: <laughs> That's kind of a big deal, and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
2: This is Wharton Moneyball's post-game podcast.
1: Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball. Which is aired live on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM 111. I am your host of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast, Professor Adi Weiner. I am a collaborator and co-creator with my colleagues Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Eric Bradlow of the Wharton School of Business. This past week, I was in the studio with Cade Massey, and I'm here today to break down the week's top takeaways. So we had two guests on our show this past week. We had Neil Payne of 538 and Rick Peterson, a uh, longtime baseball coach with the major leagues. So we had a chance to talk with Neil about the ELO rating system. The ELO is named after a man named ELO who invented a system for ranking chess players. And it's used extensively by 538 to... Evaluate the quality of teams in a given sport and you can do that across eras and across different sports and It allows you to calculate things like home court advantage and opponent strength and the 538 Website has used the ELO measure almost exclusively to evaluate teams and in particular They use this measure to determine which team is the greatest of all time, which is, enjoys the acronym, the GOAT. So here is Neil Payne talking about the Warriors and whether or not Elo believes the Warriors are the GOAT
3: got elo ratings uh at 538 which is just you know i mean i'm sure you guys have talked about this too it's chess rating system that gives you points when you win games especially in proportion to how unlikely you were to win games and and vice versa when you lose and if you do that the warrior's are the number one team. The 2017 Warriors are the best team of all time. They had the highest peak ELO rating. I think they passed the 96 Bulls after game one of the finals and then added to it in each of the next two games. Interestingly, they didn't finish with the highest rating being their peak. Their final rating was the highest ever, beating the 96 Bulls final rating also, but both of those teams, the 96 Bulls and this year's Warriors, lost after being up 3 uh, nothing in the in the finals, and so they kind of gave away some points.
1: So ELO is a system that essentially gives points to teams when they beat good teams and gives very little points when you beat weak teams, so it's really like a winning percentage adjusted for strength of schedule and it's a, and put on a, a constant scale that is comparable of all time. Now, of course, ELO isn't the only factor to consider in determining who is truly the GOAT. There are those who think the Warriors roster right now might be the most talented of all times. The Cavs roster is a terrific roster. They didn't change over the year, but the Warriors clearly did get better because they added Kevin Durant so let's hear what Neil Payne has to say about the change of the Cavs and the Warriors
3: last year's cavs certainly played a better regular season the way the cavs kind of came out of the regular season uh this year was uh, was limping i think would be a good way to describe it and they had a great playoff run so you know they kind of averaged out and the cavs were probably you know is there a statistical difference uh you know a significant difference between you know any of these cavs teams that have kind of faced the warriors i don't think there's that much of a difference you know whether they won or lost they've been you know sort of equally good teams, probably. The Warriors are the team that, that have kind of changed, and I think that they have just added, you know, whether it be the 73-win version a year ago, and then they add Kevin Durant to that. I think this is just sort of the, the culmination of the most talent we've ever seen on a single roster, probably in basketball history, uh, you know, kind of playing out. So it's a little like the Cavs are in this arms race where they're standing still and, and the Warriors just kind of keep getting better.
1: The Warriors do keep getting better. The The addition of Durant was, of course, an enormous addition, very, very, very useful, and it turned into a championship. Now there's a lot of interesting background that made this possible. Of course, there was a big TV contract, which led immediately to the raising of the salary cap, that led the Warriors to have the money that they could use to purchase Durant. And there was all kinds of issues that were uh, that were talked about here. And the Warriors were able to sign them because of an effort to sort of level the economic playing field, and because there was extra money, it, they got extra money um, that they were able to use to buy purchase Durant. But there are other issues involved. Here's a discussion that Kate. And I had. The question is why is Durant not paid his market value? And that's because of the cap. They have a cap on the maximum salary. Durant couldn't have made more money going to the this is Yankees. Spoken like if you a will.
0: real Yankees fan. Geez, really? You want you want to go free market? You want you want this to? Well, be... I
1: want this to be like the like the uh, like the like European. The, I mean, the, like the yeah, soccer leagues, like want the English to... Premier League, where you go out and buy the team. No, they moved players around. That, much. But well, bec- I would like because I mean, it's so exciting to watch Chelsea play Tottenham or whatever the hell. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not. The, it's the issue. Is it? How can a team that's already the best then go and sign? the best available player it just doesn't seem well that's like, going to be
0: much more the case when you don't have a cap i mean that's that was almost illustrative of what happens with the no I'm, a cap. I'm
1: talking about a you can have a salary cap for the team but they also have a salary cap for the player there are two things that work that work i
0: don't think that's even is that no there's max contract, there's a there's, max that's contract. Max contract. Yeah, yeah, so
1: yeah. i and particularly in basketball where one player can be so can con, contribute so much durant couldn't have gone elsewhere and made 45 million right so the controversy has to do with two factors, and Kate and I were kind of debating it, um, and there was some confusion I'd like to sort of straighten out. Durant was able to move to the Warriors because the salary cap for the team got raised, which left the Warriors with extra money that they could use to purchase Durant. But the other thing, and this is the key piece, there's a maximum contract. So other teams had their caps raised, and they had much, much more money available to them. They could easily have paid Durant $45 million or even $60 million to bring Durant to their team, but because of the max contract, they couldn't do that. Durant couldn't get what he really earned, what he deserves on a free market. So it's possible to have a salary cap to level the playing field, so every team has the same amount of money to work with, but also to have more of the element of a free market and let the superstars get more money. And that way they won't all accumulate on one team, which is apparently what the Warriors have done. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Now, one of the intriguing things about any finals competition is the role of the home field advantage. There are those who like to talk about the home field advantage by sport, and it's generally thought of that basketball has the largest home field advantage and that hockey has the smallest home field advantage. There was a match played recently in World Cup qualifying that took place at Mexico, where the United States team drew a draw. They literally tied at one to one with Mexico, but the match was in Mexico, which confers a large home field advantage here's Kate and I talking about that John
0: Wertheim and Toby Moskowitz they did a book on basically analytics in sports they dug into why home field advantages exist and and how they vary across sports their main takeaway which was you know surprising at the time was that it's via referees referees yeah so it's not all of these things that are so intuitively compelling. People tell stories. It's not travel. It's, there's, there's probably not even a familiar, familiarity effect. It's maybe not this adrenaline thing people think whenever, you know, your team is pulling for you versus against you. It is the impact of the crowd on, on the, the referees. referees. And they break this down in lots of different ways. But, you know, if that's, the, if that's the case, the effect has to be smaller now in soccer than it used to be because of penalty time. Historically, referees didn't even have to report how much time they were giving, or at least they didn't announce it to the crowd, how much time they were giving in penalty time. And they would just play for a while, just completely ambiguous on how long they were going to let them play.
1: Yes. So soccer had uh, had this incredible amount of freedom that the referees could use to assign penalty time. But the real key point that Cade was delving into is that the the crowd really influences the referees and they are interested in pleasing the crowd in a subconscious way. And we see that in every sport, even in baseball, there's such a thing as home field advantage because the uh, umpires are desirous of kind of providing or seem to be, the data seems to show that they're more likely to call a strike against an opponent, to give the favorable call to the home field, and that is generally thought of as happening through the crowd. So there are other things that we talked about this week. We talked about some of the way that we evaluate statistics in baseball. So speaking of baseball, our second guest for our show this past week was Rick Peterson. He has spent over 15 years in the major leagues as a pitching coach for the Oakland A's during the Moneyball era for the New York Mets, and more recently as pitching development coach for the Baltimore Orioles. And he's now an acclaimed keynote speaker and has a recent book called Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Now, Rick Peterson spoke to us a little bit about what he thought of the MLB draft, which is taking place.
2: Well, I think the biggest thing with the draft is is the fact that um, because you take so many players, and the other issue is the fact that the quality of what guys that you're taking that really have a chance to pit, to play in the big leagues or pitch in the big leagues, it's a crapshoot. You know, once you get past the fourth or fifth round, you know the expectation of you know really what you're getting is. It's not, it's Just say exciting. it. Low. <laughs> yeah. It, yes. Yeah, it's, it's not that exciting. It's, you know. Literally, the reality is the fact that that you you, you may have, you know, on a twenty-five minute roster, you may have one or two guys that have a legit chance to play in the big leagues.
1: So there are enormous numbers of rounds in a baseball draft, 40, 50, there's over 1,000 players picked. The vast majority of them have essentially no chance of making it to the major leagues. Now, I always thought that you took them because of uh, hope. Uh, They were almost like lottery tickets, cheap lottery tickets. It didn't cost anything to sign them. You paid them very little to play in the minor leagues, and that maybe some of those deep round picks would would turn into something. What Rick is telling us um, is that actually, The purpose of having them is to provide competition for the two or so on each team that do have a chance. So it's not even a lottery ticket for many of those draft picks. It's just to round out a professional roster. And that's what they're there for. One of the things that's very important, of course, about about the draft, and you do pay a lot of money for your top picks, um, hundreds of millions of dollars is spent on the draft, is how to best spend your money so that you use it most efficiently. And this is really what the Moneyball book began its entire inspiration, and it took its entire inspiration from the idea of how to spend your draft money wisely. And what Billy Bean and writer Michael Lewis really talked about is the idea that they should spend spend their money not on wasteful draft picks and back in the 80s and 90s high schools high school pitchers in particular looked to be highly highly poor draft choices particularly at the top what Neil Payne did was take a look at those um, rules of thumbs that came out of Billy Bean and, and Moneyball and try to determine where they are still true
3: high school pitchers for one of the first times ever are actually good investment they, they deliver more return uh, compared to where they're picked than otherwise and then the other big thing is just college hitters continue to just be awesome what? like they what? have been the best pick for a while and i expected that to change too with sort of this you know market inefficiencies being corrected for but it doesn't seem like it has it's, it seems like college hitters just continue to outperform expectations
1: well, that is interesting observation because it really goes against what we used to believe, which was high school pitchers were not good investments. And it turns out that they seem to be good investments today. You also noted that college pitchers are not so valuable. They tend to underperform. And that's because maybe the market has priced in that Moneyball advice into their signing um, Contracts and, and now high school pitchers are now worth something. I also think that there's a tremendous amount of changes in technology. I think that under that high school pitchers were able to extract more from a high schoolers arm because of medical advances. They all seem to have their Tommy John surgery earlier. And that seems to be what is happening. One of the things that we're seeing in this year's draft, which is very interesting, is the emergence of two-way players. A couple of the top picks this year are position players and pitchers. They hit and they pitch. And the real question that I had, which we posed to Rick Peterson, is whether or not you really can do both. Can you play both sides? Here's Rick.
2: Basically, the two way player, the, the intrigue is the bat. It's not necessarily the defense. Uh, in some cases, it is a defense, but if it's the bat and it's a pitcher, you know, that's very simple. I mean, you have a DH and, you know, he, he, can, he can hit when he pitches and then you can DH him when he doesn't pitch. You know, typically, a high school pitcher, it takes a high school pitcher about 500 minor league innings to get to the big leagues. Wow. So, so yeah. So when you're talking about 500 minor league innings, you're, you're, you're basically talking about three and a half full seasons. Right. You know, if, if he if he's healthy and never misses a start. In other words, you can play golf while you're pitching. So so if you're going to take that many swings of, of a golf club, you can take that many swings of a baseball bat.
1: I love it. Rick is, is pretty much straightforward and says you can do both. Um, it's not too taxing on your, on your body to, to take those at Um We don't see it very often. I mean, there are guys like Brendan McKay and Hunter Green who seem to be able to do both. There, of course, was Babe Ruth, who was the greatest of all time, the GOAT as a two-way player. I mean, he's certainly the greatest of all time as a batter, and he also was a damn good pitcher. Um, one of the things that uh, Rick was talking about was uh, what, it, what do you need to be able to master to become an effective pitcher you need a solid delivery good fastball command and a changeup, as opposed to a breaking ball and he had some very specific things to say about why the breaking ball is just not that important
2: typically breaking balls that stay in the strike zone like when you take a look at highlights of great pitchers and you take let's take kershaw for example i mean he's one of the better pitchers in, in all of baseball <laughs> <laughs> understatement of the year Right, exactly. So you take a look at all those breaking balls that he throws That pitchers that guys swing and miss at, they're all balls. They're all balls at the bottom of the strike zone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of predictability of one guy's swing and one guy's you know, take pitches in the strike zone, a, a lot of his breaking balls that he throws for a called strike, they don't get, he, he doesn't get swings at it. Mm-hmm. Cause he, knows, he knows that this guy probably is not going to swing mm-hmm. in, in this particular time. So I'll throw a get-me-over breaking ball. But then when you take a look at his swings and misses, they're all curveballs or, or sliders that go below the strike zone.
1: Really interesting observation. I think the point that Rick was really making is that breaking balls, when thrown in the strike zone, get crushed. doesn't matter whose breaking ball it is. It's the out pitches for the Kershaws of the world are the breaking balls that dive outside of the strike zone, yet the batters still swing. And also, they're so pernicious that batters don't even try to swing at it when they know it's coming, and that's when they throw it in the strike zone because they just know they're just not going to even attempt it. And I think what, what Rick was implying, is, and we'll have to ask him next time he's on the show, is that it's just too hard to master, and that this is a an elite technique used by the elite of the elite and not something that they expect a typical pitcher to do, and this is why the, the change-up and the fastball are the dominant pitches by pitchers today. So, our last uh, topic of the day was talking about women's tennis we had of course a Rafael Nadal won the men's tournament in France on clay sealing his 10th victory there but on the women's side things were a little different 20 year old Latvian Yelena Ostapenko won the women's open and she wasn't even seated not even seated here's Kate and I talking about it And the women's side was very interesting because an unranked, unseeded player, not unranked, unseeded player was the champion. The seeds
0: go 16 deep. Is that uh, right? um,
1: The seeds go. Is it 16 deep? I mean, it's at least 16 deep. She was unseeded. Her odds prior to the tournament of winning were, well, you have to bet 100 to win 8000. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So (laughs) how how does that compare? I
0: mean, in general, in women's sports, we kind of glibly say that the right tail is thinner. There's less competition, so a dominant player has has an easier time of it, essentially. We, they, whenever you're trying to you know, deride, you know, the UConn women's basketball accomplishments, for example, you say, well, they just don't have that many teams to beat. Whenever you try to take the edge off of Serena Williams' accomplishments, you say, well, you know, I mean, just not as many players. This goes against that. It, 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 to have You're someone right. come in that's completely first unseated
1: winner since 1933. Oh my gosh! So really? eighty. I mean, essentially eight thousand. A bet a hundred to win eight thousand is eighty to one. The the woman's name is Yelena Ostapenko. She was now nobody now. Go she's, Elena,
0: but she's I'm well making... known.
1: But what is she going to do going forward? So what? Cade was telling us is that. The, it's generally thought of in women's sports that the right tail is thinner. Now, let's unpack that. The right tail means the better side, the high values. There are fewer players at the top, which means that it's it's possible for a dominant player like Serena Williams to just m- roll over all competition. And in the men's side, the top, the right tail, is populated with a number of top players. So in the men's side, of course, you, you have Federer and Nadal and you have Djokovic and um, you have uh, Murray and these and, and there's p- other people who can, can play with them con- on a consistent basis. Yet on the women's side, it tends to be fewer. Serena didn't play in this particular tournament. She's having a baby. And without her, the field is a lot wider open. And that's one explanation for why Ostapenko won. Also, it is clay. Clay has a, um, qualities which make it rather different from most of the other tournaments, certainly other Grand Slam tournaments. Clay is a surface much more conducive to spinning. It's a slower game. The players need to slide to the ball which is a skill that's hard to acquire if you didn't get it as a child and that's uh, the technique that Nadal has absolutely mastered well that concludes our Wharton Moneyball post game podcast if you want to hear the full show it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesday Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's business radio channel, 111. I want to thank our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno, and our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin, and the producer of Wharton Moneyball, Matt Johnson. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. And until then, enjoy your stats and your sports.